Good morning. Uh, church, that is one of the great truths, one of the great secrets of the Christian life. Uh, whatever my God ordains is right. Uh, I love that song. Uh, welcome to Woodside Community Church. Thank you for joining us. Please again take out your Bibles and begin turning to John chapter 4. John chapter 4 this morning we're in verses 43 through 54. You can find that on page 889 in the Pew Bible. John 4, 43 through 54. Uh, this is a tricky text. At first, it, first glance, it doesn't appear to be. It seems simple. A man's son is sick. He is at death's door. The man comes to Jesus, asks him to heal his son. Jesus says, your son will live. The man believes Jesus and believes in Jesus. The end. Uh, Jesus heals. Jesus has power over death. Jesus is life. You are dismissed. Let's, let's go eat lunch. Just kidding. Hold on. All those things are true, but there may be more going on here. There may be more than meets the eye. Initially, we opened Sunday school this morning meditating on the importance of meditation. Blessing comes to those who meditate on God's law, His, His word, day and night. And meditation is simply deep, slow, regular thinking on the things of God. And so again, here is another one of the most important and most difficult Christian lessons that we need to learn today. Slow down. That's, that is good general advice for the whole of life, but it's particularly important to your devotional life and to your reading of the scriptures, slow down. I have always disliked the saying, slow and steady wins the race. That's dumb, right? That's, that's not true. Fast and steady wins the race, right? If I run our half marathon slow and steady and Anthony runs it fast and steady, Anthony wins, right? It's, it's that simple. The lesson of the fable of the tortoise and hare should not be slow and steady wins the race. The lesson is don't be stupid, right? It's, it's don't lay down and take a nap in the middle of a race. Don't be prideful. Not slow and steady wins the race. But when it comes to scripture reading, when it comes to the spiritual life, it is often the case that slow and steady wins the race. Because the ends and the goals that we are pursuing simply cannot be accomplished quickly. So slow down. Read slowly. I would much rather you read a couple of verses every day, deeply meditating on those verses, than I would you read 10 chapters a day. Read slowly. And that's part of my job, right? You pay me so that I don't have to spend 40 hours a week trying to feed my family, but so that I can be free to give much of that time to the reading and studying of Scripture to more effectively then minister that to you. And then so once you start reading this story slowly, once you start paying attention to some of the subtle things, remember John is a great writer, to some of the subtle things that he's masterfully doing, and once you start asking questions of the text, remember that's how you read and understand a text, just assault it with questions. Once you do that, all kinds of stuff starts to jump out. And the first thing you'll see as you start to read it is you'll see some repetition. You'll see repetition of words like death and live and believe. So the story very simply has to have something to do with that. And then we see something unique at the end. Verse 54 says, and this was now the second sign. And that's alerting us to something. Remember, this is first reminding us of John 20, 31, thesis statement. Why is this here? Why do we have this book? What's its purpose? These signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. 
It sounds like our story. There's sign, there's believe, there's life, which is the opposite of and the solution to death. Again, that's the theme. That's the thesis of the whole book. But there's something there that I think that we tend to miss. I I hadn't really noticed this until I was studying this week, and we've been in this book for six months already. We know that the book of John is all about signs. Remember, it's structured around these signs. Most simply, you could break the book down into two parts. Chapters 1 through 12 is the book of signs. Chapters um, 13 through 20, part 2, is the book of the sign, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So John is all about signs that, that is communicated by the number of them, the structure of the book, and the thesis statement. These signs are written, but we can't miss that. Think about that. The thesis statement doesn't say, these signs will be shown to you. Or, these signs will be repeated for you. Or, you too will see these signs. No, it says, these signs are written. In other words, this book is a word about the signs. It's not signs. We are not given signs. They were given the signs. We are given words about the signs. And the signs are not and never were the point. And the passage before us this morning is going to draw this out for us, which is good because we get the signs wrong. We get the miracles wrong. There are whole camps in the Christian world that get the miracles wrong. And that can be a very dangerous thing. And again, we know it's somewhat easy to recognize the absurdity of the hucksters on TV that promise you a miracle if you touch the screen or if you just sow your seed or if you promise that if they promise to you that God is all about your health, wealth and happiness. Again, we recognize that, but it's not quite as easy to recognize the tendency within all of us for a subtle, maybe more deadly form of that same prosperity gospel, um, same sort of kind of obsession with us and what we can get out of this and what kind of God owes to us. In John 1.37, Jesus asks a probing personal question that I want us to all be considering this morning. What are you seeking? What are you seeking? He's going to imply that same question today. Why are you here? What do you hope to get out of this? What do you hope to get out of Jesus? Because John is again going out of his way to make it clear that there is a seeking of Jesus that is not seeking Jesus. There is a belief about Jesus that is not belief in Jesus. And since, as we'll see in a moment, this whole section that we are concluding today is all about how Jesus is life, there is then nothing more important than understanding what it means to believe in Jesus. Because there are many who think they believe in Jesus, but Jesus believes, Jesus knows that they do not. And if he is life... That then leaves only death. And it is death that is the occasion of this passage. It is uh, the urgency that death should occasion that makes this so pressing and so important. I I know this for you guys as well, but it has been very hard for me to watch Lydia die. Um, It just has. It has been very hard to go one day and be able to note a clear physical difference and degradation from the previous day. That has been very hard, but very helpful Especially as she, as her outer self is wasting away, has also then at the same time, she herself has been constantly reminding me of that inner self and demonstrating that inner self being renewed and sustained day by day. 
And it is only because of that. It is only because of the spiritual life that she has in Christ that she and we can face the absolute horror of death. Death may be the farthest thing from your mind this morning. It, it shouldn't be. It should be always on your mind all the time. It's there. It's looming. It's coming. And death is what this passage is about. So let's look at it. Three points. We need to first see and be convinced that Jesus is Life. It's the first and most important thing. If that's the case, there's nothing more important than understanding how we get the Christ who is life. So let's start with how we don't get him. Point number two, we're going to see the belief that is not belief. Well, then how do we get the Christ that is life? Point number three will end with the belief that is life. Main idea, big picture, trust in the word of the word is life. Trusting in the word of the word is life. Not signs, but words. That's what Jesus is going to draw out here. But let me read the text for you first. Uh, this is the most important part. These will be the most important words that I utter this morning because these are God's uh, holy, inspired, inerrant words. John 4, 43 through 54. Pay attention because this is what God wants to say to you today. After the two days, he, Jesus, departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. If you would bow with me, let's begin uh, with a word of prayer. Father, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe that apart from your Spirit, we can accomplish nothing of lasting eternal value in this time. So we ask uh, that you would take and work through this living and active word, that you would reveal to us your Son, Jesus Christ, through it, that you would implant in our hearts a great affection and love for the Jesus Christ that is revealed in this text to us. Father, please help me. Help me to be convinced that I have no power, no ability in and of myself, that it is not my preparation or not my work or not my wit or creativity or anything that matters at all, but it is you by your spirit working through your word. So we ask that you would do that now. We ask that you would help the preaching of your word. We ask that you would help the hearing of your word. And we ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so the text demands that we begin with a little summary. Our first point is simply that Jesus is life. 
But I want you to, what I want you to see is that this whole section, we are ending a section today. This whole first cycle of ministry that concludes today, chapters 2, 3, and 4, is actually all about life. There are a couple of indicators in the text that drive us back. You need the text open in front of you. Look at the text. Look in verse 43. There we get a geographic marker. We are back to Galilee. Remember, Jesus has been in Jerusalem. That's in the south. He just spent um, some time in Samaria. That's just above Jerusalem, heading further north. And now he continues even more north back to Galilee. As he came again, verse 30, 30, 46, to Cana. And that word is kind of like a flashing light. And when you combine that with the end of the story, verse 54, this was now the second sign that Jesus did. Again, we, we have to be to look back. John is forcing our attention backwards. We have to make some connections, especially when we realize here that John doesn't keep counting his signs. We saw a while ago that it seems that John um, structures this first part of the book around seven different signs, uh, culminating in the sign of the resurrection in the second part. And so we think that here, when we read second sign, that if were we to keep reading, we would find this was the third sign, and this was the fourth sign, the fifth sign, and so on. But we don't, actually. John doesn't keep counting the signs. John only numbers the signs here in this verse, and back in chapter 2, verse 11, the first sign, also in Canaan. So look back at chapter 2, verse 11. This is the only other time John does this. This, remember the water to wine, is the first of his signs Jesus did in Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So this verse with our verse is something we've talked about before that's referred to as an inclusio. Sounds fancy. It's not. Don't complicate it. You hear the word inclusion there. I prefer to think of them as sandwiches because sandwiches are delicious, right? A sandwich is set apart by its two pieces of bread and that which is, this is a weird shaped sandwich, this way, uh, that which is contained within those two pieces of bread, meat, hopefully lots of meat, that reveals to you what the sandwich is. And so what John is doing here with first sign, second sign, Cana, Cana, as he's tying all of it together. He's indicating what this whole section is about. He's indicating that chapters 2, 3, and 4 are all one section and they go together. And thus, you must read the second sign in light of the first sign. And you must read all that is contained within in light of them as well. And so what is this good and glorious sandwich about? It's about life. It has to be. Uh, some people, you could go with something like maybe like Jesus is making all things new. But I think it's simplest to go with the purpose of this section being the revelation of Jesus as life and thus the giver of life. Remember, this aspect of Christ and this purpose of his coming was stated at the very outset from the beginning of the book. Remember, John gives us some of the main themes in chapter 1 and then he unpacks them in the rest of the book. And so in chapter 1, verse 3, we saw all things were made through him, right? Christ is creator. He's the creator of life. Verse 4 of chapter 1, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Then we get to chapter 2. We go to Cana, that first sign, and Jesus transforms the water into wine. Yeah, 
We talked about this. We struggle to understand this sign because we have been so conditioned by our American Christian context to believe and assume that wine is bad. Uh, that idea doesn't come from the Bible. Um, drunk, bad. Drink, good. That's like the biblical position. Uh, Psalm 104.15 talks about God's good gift of wine that gladdens the heart of man. Go read, go read Isaiah 25. It's this wonderful promise. God is telling his people what he is going to eventually but assuredly do for them. And in verse 9 of Isaiah 25, he tells us ultimately what that is. He says, he will swallow up death forever. And what, what a promise. That's, that's life. And so in the context of that ultimate promise, God is conveying this through rich and good symbols. And so right before that, in Isaiah 25, 6, God says, On this mountain, the Lord Yahweh of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. Remember, Jesus is always operating in the context of the Hebrew Scriptures. And in the Hebrew Scriptures, wine is one of the symbols of blessing and of gladness and of joy and of life. And so from the very outset of his ministry, Jesus is signaling to us what he is about and why he has come. We read John 10.10 last week, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And that's what Jesus is conveying in the first sign in chapter 2. So it's all about life at the beginning of chapter 2. Then in chapter 3, we saw verse 7. Jesus tell Nicodemus, you must be born again. That's life. Verse 15 of chapter 3, whoever believes in the Son may have eternal life. Verse 16, God gave his Son for eternal life. Then that is what he offers the Samaritan woman at the well in chapter 4. Verse 14. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. 4.36, he teaches about gathering fruit for eternal life. And now here in our culminating story, kind of the climax of this first cycle in verse 50, Jesus says to this desperate father, your son will live. This is the point of the story. This is the point of Jesus. We're going to look at the specifics of the story in a moment. But, but death is the occasion. Right? A, a looming funeral is the occasion. First sign at a wedding. Second sign at the point of death. A potential funeral. John is connecting the two. He, he's tying them together. Well, again, that, that's the beginning of your new life um, with your wife. That's the end of your life. Uh, the point that John is kind of making is, is that Jesus is more than equal to both occasions. He is more than equal to the task. In moments of joy, in moments of sorrow, he is still Son and Savior, light and life. And John has written this whole book to make that point to you. And this whole first section, this first cycle of Jesus' ministry, is starting with and emphasizing this point that is the most important thing in your whole life to know. Jesus himself is life. And if that is true, then it logically follows that apart from Jesus, who is life, there is only death. Genesis chapter 1, God is the creator. He's the beginning and the source of everything. All life 
flows from and comes from who he is. Edwards used to describe God and his love as kind of the symbol of a fountain, right? It is the nature of a fountain just to kind of overflow. That is God's nature. He is life. Life overflows from him. And as we saw in John 1, the fact that Jesus is God, the fact that all things were made through him means that he's life. That life can only be found in reference and relationship to him. But because of sin, chapter 3, sin which is ultimately a rebellion against and a rejection of the God who is life, death rushes in. Death is the result. Our sin has separated us from the God who is life. And if that sin is not dealt with, if the separation is not removed, well, death is what remains. Again, not just physical death, spiritual eternal death and and that's what hell is but it just doesn't tend to concern us much these days in part because sin has made us all materialists right we have we have bought the lie that this life is all that there is and that our physical health and safety and life is the most important thing those things are important but they are not the most important what if we actually have a soul What if we actually have a soul, and that soul goes on in to eternity? And surely that would change things, right? Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, The ultimate secret of every godly Christian. Whoa, that's quite a claim. The ultimate secret of every godly Christian. This better be good, Jones. The real secret is the realization that the most priceless thing in life is your soul. The soul within me goes on for all eternity. God has put it into me. God breathed into man so that he became a living soul. That is what stamps men and women as being made in the image of God. My soul is the most precious thing of all. That is what I most want to safeguard and protect. Your soul is the most precious thing of all. Do you live as if your soul is the most precious thing of all. As if that soul goes on for eternity. And if that's the case, then there is no more important question than the state of that soul. How's your soul? How's the life of your soul? Ezekiel 18.20, the soul who sins shall die. Soul there means more person than the individual, but the point is the same. For we are our soul. And the soul who sins shall die. Romans 3. All have sinned, therefore all have died. I've never seen the show. I'm not recommending the show. I've never seen it. But it is a good title. Everyone truly is the walking dead. That's, what we, that's how we are all born into this world. The walking dead. Physically alive. Spiritually dead. And so the urgent question is, how can such a sin-sick soul, a dead soul, how can it live How can it get and gain the life that can only be found in Christ? Point number two. Let's first see how it cannot be found. Let's look at the belief that is not belief. Back to the text. Let's tackle one of the difficulties. This is fun. Did you notice this? Look at verse 44. This is strange. This drives some commentators crazy. Did you catch the potential? Did you read it? Like, wait a second, that doesn't make sense. Jesus has departed for Galilee for, remember how important these little linking words are, he has departed for Galilee for a conjunction, connecting word, expressing cause, giving explanation. Jesus departed for Galilee for this reason, 
Verse 44, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own town. What? You see it? Why would he go there for he has no honor there? He says, I went there for this purpose. A prophet has no honor there. Doesn't make much sense. Hometown is just the word, Greek word patris. Sounds like pater, father. Just means fatherland. The, the land of one's fathers. And we know that for Jesus that was Galilee. We've already seen back in chapter 1, verses 45 and 46, Jesus tied to Nazareth in Galilee. And plus, we actually have this same saying in all three of the other synoptic gospels. Matthew 13, verse uh, 53 through 58, Jesus goes to Nazareth, his hometown. He teaches. The people take great offense at him. And so Jesus says, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. And so here, Jesus must be referencing the same place, must be referencing Nazareth or Galilee in general. And so the question is, why would Jesus travel to his homeland for or because a prophet has no honor in his homeland? That would seem to be the reason not to go there. That's kind of tricky, right? But hold on, because we're not done yet. It gets trickier. Keep reading. Jesus travels to Galilee for a prophet has no honor in his hometown, Galilee, verse 45. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. What? Do you see the potential problem? Jesus the prophet has no honor in his hometown of Galilee. So he goes to his hometown of Galilee. So they welcomed him. These don't seem to go together, right? No honor in his hometown. Welcomed in his hometown. Well, which is it? What's going on here? Critical scholars are so bothered by this, it's, just, it's an error. It's a mistake. The editors messed the whole thing up. It doesn't make any sense. Well, keep reading. Ignore the heading in the ESV. It breaks up the story. Headings are not helpful. There is no break. What follows explains what precedes. Let's understand 44 and 45 and the potential conflict in light of what happens next. Always context. Jesus is back to Cana and John goes out of his way to remind us that Cana is where Jesus turned the water to wine. Again, that's, that's an alert. Read this sign in light of the first sign. He's telling us, he's directing us backwards. And now we finally get to the conflict. Conflict drives good stories. Here it is, middle of verse 46. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. Uh, parents, we've all probably been there to some degree or another, uh, rushing a kid to the ER that feels unresponsive, that you're terrified about. There's nothing that we love more than our children, and thus there's nothing more terrifying than when they are terribly sick. There is no more helpless feeling than when your little one is sick and suffering. And so there is great urgency here. There is great need here. And also don't miss the identity of the one whose son is ill. All we're told is that he is an official. The word is basilikos, and you can hear its connection to the word basileus, which is the word for king in Greek. So a basilikos is someone who is in some way connected to the king. Could be family, or most likely it's just some sort of royal official. Here that king would be Herod Antipas. He wasn't technically a king. He was a tetrarch, but to the people, he was basically the king. And we just don't really know anything else beyond that about this man. I mentioned a few weeks ago that some people think he's a Gentile, but some are insistent that he is not a Gentile. I'm really not sure. 
Uh, just like the Samaritan woman, he was unnamed. Um, both of them were unnamed. But we do know, unlike the Samaritan woman, as a basilikos, as an official, as someone connected to the king, he would have been someone in some sort of position of privilege and power. He would have had money, authority, influence, all the things that we think are the things that we want and need to have the good life or life. Every single one of you has to think like, the next raise, then I'll be good. Or the other job, then I'll be good. Or a little bit more money. You all think, you get that thing and you've got the life. We're listening to the world. But this is important to note in our current context and obsession with identity markers and our desire to categorize people according to power and privilege, oppressors and oppressed. Note here how someone that we would naturally assume is powerful is actually completely powerless when it comes to what really matters. Right? We get our powerful and privileged designations entirely wrong when we make those determinations and declarations with no reference to spiritual reality and eternity. Here is power, privilege, and it is desperate and helpless and dead apart from Christ. And listen, that's everyone. Whether powerful or powerless, oppressor or oppressed, privileged or poor, black or white, all equally dead apart from Christ. But we cannot forget that in the current conversations raging around us. The Bible does not speak or categorize in those terms. The Bible does not classify and divide in those terms. It's only righteous or wicked, dead or alive, and the only difference is grace in Jesus Christ. And so this privileged, powerful official is completely powerless. He's completely at a loss. His son is dying. Verse 47. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So verse 45 has told us that the Galileans welcomed Jesus for they had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem. Right? They had seen the signs. This man too then must have some sort of knowledge of Jesus' power, some sort of knowledge of what he has done and is able to do. And so he's in Capernaum, his son is dying, he's helpless, and he hears of a man now in Cana who apparently has some sort of ability to heal. This is about 15 miles-ish, kind of between these two towns. And it's, it's a no-brainer. He goes to him immediately. He is a loving father faced with the possibility of losing his precious son. Again, try to kind of put yourself into the story Try to imagine the urgency. Try to imagine what he is thinking and feeling in his desperation. The fear, the sorrow, the sadness. Put yourself in his shoes. And then I want you to try and imagine how you would respond to that father in this situation. I want you to try and imagine how our current cultural context would demand how we should respond to that father in what he is feeling. And then I want you to look at how Jesus responds to that father and compare. Verse 48. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Whoa. Oh, very warm and fuzzy. It's not very soupy, sappy, sentimental. It doesn't feel very kind and compassionate and empathetic -y. We're supposed to wallow in the sentiment and the feelings and the woe is you and yes. And There's all kinds of articles and books out there right now that would tell you that this is precisely not the way 
to respond to those who are suffering. This is not how you weep with those who weep. But this is Jesus. He does all things well, including comforting the suffering. Here he is confronted with the height of suffering, and here is how he responds. And Jesus does not make mistakes. We can learn something here from his response. So what is he up to? Why does he respond the way that he does? Well, there's a couple of indicators in the text. First off, the Greek helps a little bit. If you're in the ESV, you see that little number two? You see the little footnote uh, there? Track that down to the bottom of the page where we read Jesus say, unless you see signs, that you in the Greek is plural. And this is one of the deficiencies of the English language. We have no real second person plural. The South has tried to solve that with y'all, you all. I mean, it's a good idea, I guess. Just poorly executed. Um, I cannot get past the grating sound of the made-up contraction. As I've tried to convince you and trick you that I'm not from the South, I won't use the word. I can't do it. Actually, you is technically the second person plural in English. We didn't lose our second person plural. We lost our second person singular. You was the plural. Thou was the singular. So my proposal was instead of adding this weird y'all, let's bring thou back, right? (laughs) Thou is singular. You is plural. Either way, in verse 48, the you is plural. And so the NASB helpfully adds, unless you people see signs. So we know that Jesus is not just talking to the grieving father. Jesus is constantly surrounded by crowds. He is using this as an opportunity to address not just this man, but the crowd as well, or he's addressing this man as representative of the crowd of Galileans and their general response to Jesus. And it is Jesus' response here that explains verses 44 and 45. And we've already seen this. We've, we've talked about this. Don't forget our inclusio, our, our sandwich. It's all tied together and structured to indicate this. The opening, chapter 2, is the first sign, water to wine. And that's followed by this strange aside in chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, about signs and belief. The close here, chapter 4, second sign, healing of the sun, is also preceded by this strange aside in verse 48, all about signs and belief. And this is the solution to the potential conflict of 44 and 45. All right, it's clear. 44, a prophet has no honor in his hometown. But what about the welcome in verse 45? Verse 48 explains to us the nature of the welcome. It was not true, deep, saving, believing, welcome. They welcomed him, verse 45, having or because They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem. They welcomed him because they had seen the signs. They had seen the wonders. In other words, they welcomed him because of the signs and the wonders. It's like the the rich person shows up to church and like, hey, yeah, come on, we'd love love for you to come be a part of the church. I'd love to get to know you and spend time with you, right? I want your money. That's, that's, That's what we're doing, and that's what we're saying. That's what they're saying here. This is, John is writing, ironically, this is a welcome that is actually a rejection. They were interested not in Jesus. They were interested only in the miracles of Jesus. They wanted not Jesus, but what they thought that they could get from Jesus. And that's exactly what Jesus is lamenting in verse 48. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And he's not praising them. 
He's rebuking them. That is not a good thing. And remember, this is the exact same thing he did back in chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. Again, peek there. Again, look at it. Look at the end of chapter 2, verse 23. Maybe we saw this. It says, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Well, that sounds wonderful. And that's the whole point of the book, John told us. So that they could, here's the signs so that they could believe and have life. But isn't that what they're doing? No, because look at Jesus' response to their belief in verse 24. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. I know you remember this sermon perfectly months ago when we looked at it. But remember, we saw that that verb there translated did not trust is actually the exact same verb, pastuo, that is translated believe in verse 23. It's the same verb. So these two verses together say, in effect, they believed in him because of the signs, but he did not believe in them. Or he did not believe in their belief because he knew them. So Jesus knows it's a superficial, surfacy belief based only on signs. And that's not good. And so now back in chapter 4, we have the same idea repeated and emphasized again. At the beginning of the cycle and at the end of the cycle, John is driving the same point home. Why? Because this must be a serious problem and a major temptation. And here's the point. An interest in the miracles of Jesus is not necessarily an interest in Jesus. An interest in the miracles of Jesus is not an interest in Jesus. In fact, a preoccupation with the miracles of Jesus, according to these texts, often seems to indicate a lack of preoccupation with Jesus. And if that's correct, then that is a bad sign for large swaths of the church today that are obsessed with the supposed miraculous and supernatural. Right? Just come here and angel feathers fall from the sky. Right? There's a, go lay on that grave and you can suck the blessing from this person's grave. And here's this miracle that we'll, we'll show you. Wait, what about, what about this? Right? John is very intentional about calling the supernatural things that Jesus does not miracles, but signs. We've talked about this in great detail. We've talked about the signs. Jesus never performs signs just for the sake of the signs. Jesus is not a performer. He is not seeking to wow us or entertain us. He's not seeking even ultimately the healing or the feeding or whatever the immediate purpose of the sign serves. And that's evidenced here. Jesus could have just healed the son. He doesn't do it. Not yet. Because Jesus is about and up to more important things. Jesus' focus is never first on the immediate, but always the ultimate. He will often use the immediate as a means to get to the ultimate. He is here to heal. He is going to heal, but first he's going to teach. And in doing so, he is going to direct and redirect our focus and our attention to what matters most. And so, for John, not miracles, but signs. And signs are proof of divine authority. The sign is designed specifically to draw the focus away from the deed itself to the doer of the deed. That's the point of a sign. Not to draw your attention to it, but away from it, to the thing that it does. And yet, for some reason, we're so focused on the signs. No, it's a sign. It points away from itself. It's not the point. It points to the one who is. 
And so John, in being intentional about calling these signs, is making it clear that their true value was not in the thing itself, but in what it pointed to or what it signified. Right? The point of the sign, the true value, was in its revealing who Jesus is as Son and Savior and life. And if that's the case, if that's the ultimate point of the signs, then John also has to make sure to show us the insufficiency of the faith that is based only on signs. Jesus does not believe in that belief. Such a faith is inadequate because it has missed the whole point. Right? We've used this illustration before. Right? If I get to North Carolina, and we're so excited to get down, we've got a lot of North Carolina here uh, today. Go, go Tar Heels. Oh, that's wonderful. So we love to travel to North Carolina. If we get there, and we cross the line on Interstate 95, and we see the sign, and we're like, yes, and we stop, and we camp out, and we hang out at the sign. No, we've missed the point. Right? The sign is revealing to us the glories that are to come in the great state that is North Carolina. Not the signs. You focus on that, you miss everything else. And so John is showing us the inadequacy of this faith that is focused on the signs. In focusing on the deed, the doer of the deed has been missed. In focusing on what it can get from Jesus, it has missed Jesus. And this is like the transition to the next cycle. And John is going to further develop this theme, and it's going to build in climax. In chapter 6, Jesus will again criticize the crowd in verse 26 for coming to him only because he has just fed them. Again, they don't want him. They want food. And he goes on to teach them what they really need and further reveal himself to him. And the result, in verses 60 through 66, it's grumbling. They take great offense, and then many turn away and leave Jesus. The signs are insufficient. An obsession with signs and a need for signs is a bad sign. Remember Luke 16, right? Rich man and Lazarus. Uh, the rich man dies, goes to hell. He begs Abraham, oh, please, this is terrible, this is awful. Send Lazarus back. He's still trying to command Lazarus. Send Lazarus back from the dead to, uh, to the rich man's five brothers to, to warn them so that they can know that this is what waits them. You know what Abraham says to them? They've got the word. He said they've already got Moses and the prophets. If they won't believe Moses and the prophets, they're not going to believe this miraculous sign of a man coming back from the dead. No, they have the words. Because the words are better. Belief, because of belief, based only on signs, is not biblical, saving, life-giving belief. And so Jesus' response, which many would not like today, they were all writing all these articles, like, don't counsel like this. No, it's actually the height of kindness and compassion. Because this is who our Savior is. He is gentle and lowly in heart. And he invites all who labor and are heavy laden to come to him and to find rest for your souls. And that is what Jesus is doing in responding the way that he does. He is lovingly challenging this desperate father to see the big picture, to see the eternal spiritual picture. There is nothing more devastating than the death of a child. But parents, we've got to believe this. There's nothing more devastating than that except for the spiritual death of a child. And so thus, I have to do everything as a parent in light of that fact. If you are not parenting with the reality of eternity uh, forefront in your mind, then you are failing your children. I don't care where they go to college. Where do they spend eternity? Do they know Jesus? And are you doing everything that you can with eternity in mind? 
And so Jesus is showing this man that his need is far, far greater and far more desperate than he can even begin to imagine. Jesus knows that the one thing that this man and his son needs is Jesus himself. And so it is kind for Jesus to challenge him and direct him to himself because he is life. Jesus did not want to just give this son back to his father. He wanted to give himself to the father. But this official came to Jesus initially only wanting something from Jesus, concerned only with what he could get from Jesus. Again, as good as that thing is, he's missing the main point. And so we all need to be asking ourselves, why are we here? What do we seek and hope to get out of this? What are you seeking? Because it, be, it could be quite possible that you are, um, to think you are seeking Christ when you are actually only seeking Christ as a means of seeking self. It is quite possible to think that you are believing in Christ when you are actually only believing that Christ can give you what you want. And this is the belief that is not belief. This is a believing about Jesus that is not believing in Jesus. This is a seeking from Jesus and not seeking Jesus. But Jesus loves this man too much to leave him there. Jesus loves him too much to restore his son to him physically and leave the man, his son, and his family still stuck in their sins. And so point number three, let's look quickly at the belief that is life. Look at what happens. Look at how the official responds to the rebuke. Can you imagine how we would respond today to this? I would be so offended. You've hurt my feelings. Uh, look at verse 49. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Okay, what's, what's going on here? I don't know. It could seem that maybe he's not getting it yet. Uh, again, I'm not so sure. I think he's starting to get there. Uh, again, let's be clear. It is good and right that he is desperate about the state of his son. Right? That's a right and good thing. I have rushed my children to the ER before. Uh, that has not and should not change. But there could be an indication here that the official is making some progress. Remember first, he's the official. He is the one in the position of power and authority. And here he is addressing this just itinerant, wandering Jewish rabbi. But how does he address him? He addresses him as sir. Maybe there's some humility there. Plus, again, I don't know why they went with this. I'm not an expert. But this Greek word, yes, it can mean sir a handful of times, but over like 680 some of the about 700 times that this word is used, it's Lord. This is curios. This is the word Lord. He is maybe starting to see and recognize something. Is he starting to get it? Is he starting to get Christ? Again, I think so. Look at verse 50. Oh, look at how good and gracious Christ is. Even if he doesn't get it yet, look at how Jesus responds. Go your son will live. Again, there's the theme. There's life. Jesus is life. The boy is at the point of death. Jesus intervenes. Death is defeated. Life is granted. Jesus is good. Jesus is life. But we're still not quite to the main point yet. And right now we're focusing on the belief that is life. The rest of verse 50. Here it is. Look at it. This is so important. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Do you see the difference? Verse 45 and 47. Having heard of Jesus and what he had done, having seen the signs, he comes to Jesus, asks for a miracle. Verse 48, Jesus says, unless you see signs and wonders, and he's saying there's a false faith based on signs. Jesus is saying that's bad. And so verse 50, what does Jesus do? 
He doesn't give him a sign. Jesus' answer to the official is both a granting and a denying. He refuses the request to go with the official. He refuses to give the official any sort of sign. But he does grant. He does give. He gives no sign. We are 15 miles away from the sun. So what does Jesus give? He gives a word. That's it. He gives his word. Go. Trust me. Do you see it? Do you see the contrast? Signs, not good. Faith, based only on them, not good. Here's a word. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke. And so, very clearly, the man is not believing based on a sign. Jesus gave him no sign. He gave him only a word. And the man takes him at his word. He trusts simply in the word of Christ. The NIV takes a little liberty here with this verse, but I actually kind of like it. They translate it as, the man took Jesus at his word. And that's faith. That's the belief that is life. This is what we read in Romans 10. How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Verse 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Not signs, but words. Not the miracles, oh, but the miracle that is the scriptures. And so it's easy to get this wrong in this book that is all about the signs. But the signs are not the point. We are not given signs. These signs are written, John says. He says, I am giving you words about the signs. We are given the word. And that is where life is found, because that's where Christ is found. And that's why the whole book starts off with the revelation of Jesus as the Word who was with God and was God. The Word who reveals God. The Word who is life. That's why after everyone abandons Jesus in chapter 6, those who are truly His say in verse 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And that's what Jesus had just taught them in verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives Life. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. So in church, the word, it's, it's just absolutely everything. This is why we start with the attribute of Scripture. We talked about the necessity of Scripture in Sunday school. It's not optional. It is life. If it is life, you cannot live without it. If man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word from the mouth of God, then no word, right? No food equals death. No word equals death. And this makes perfect sense in the storyline of Scripture. The first thing God does in the very beginning is speak. And we miss how significant that is. He speaks. And he's so powerful. His word is so effective that it literally, his word creates Everything. His word literally creates life. Life is undergirded and founded upon uh, his word. And then he comes to his people and he speaks to us. And he gives us his word. Because words reveal. The words of a person reveal the heart of a person. And words also then are relationship. We know one another through the words and thus we relate to one another through words. Husbands, this is important to understand. It took me a long time to get. I'm still struggling with it. Um, but we love our, our wives with our words by communicating and by revealing ourselves to them. We hate to do that, but it's fundamental to relationship because that's what words do. They reveal and they relate. 
And so that's how God reveals and relates to us, through his living and active word. Church, this word, right, this word that we can so easily go weeks and months and forever without reading, you're starving. This word shows you who this Christ is, the Christ who is life. And it is through these words that we come to know him and that the spirit works. He doesn't make these words alive. There's nothing wrong with these words. They're already alive. He makes our dead hearts alive to the already living word so that we can receive them um, and we can respond to them and find in them the Christ who is life. The Christ who is life who came to die um, so that we could live. In church, that's the gospel. That's the good news, the good word that is the power of God for salvation. And so listen, see the glory and the grace of the Son of God come to us and for us, come to live and die in our place for the forgiveness of the sins which deserve death. That's why he's life. He is life. Life, The author of life submits himself. You, You hung the author of life on a cross, right? The author of life submits himself to death. It's the most remarkable thing that has ever happened. And he does it in our place. And then he rose again, defeating that death so that we could live. And it is belief in that word, belief in him, that is life. The belief that is life is more than faith in his power to do the miraculous. Lots of people think God can do the miraculous. It's more than faith in his power to give you what you want. Lots of people are telling you God will give you all these things that you want. No, it is faith in him as the miraculous. It is faith in him to see that he is the gift that God gives to you. The thing that we get from God is God himself in Christ. Everything else is contained within that. You don't get that. You don't get any of the other things. So faith wants Christ, not what it can get from Christ. Faith at its most basic is the recognition and the cry, I need Jesus. This is that simple. Do you recognize that? Do you then look to him and long for him and love him all in and through his word? Luther writes this, in faith, one must look to nothing but the word of God. Whoever permits anything else to be pictured in his eyes is already lost. Faith clings to the naked and pure word, neither to its works nor to its merits. It's the word, church. And so you have no greater need than to believe Christ's word, to take him at his word, and then to trust and rest completely in his word. It is there that you will find life. And that's the whole point of the story. Yes, your son will live physical life, but that's not the point of the story. That's actually secondary. That's actually the sign pointing to the main thing signified. That's the secondary pointing to the primary. Look at the end of verse 53, and I'm done. End of verse 53, the father finally and fully understands, this is wonderful, and he himself believed and all his household. Who must that include? The son. The son. Do you see what Jesus has just done? Do you see how good he is and how much better he is than we tend to think? He loved this man too much to give him what he thought that he most wanted. He first graciously revealed to him what he should truly most want. And then he gave him that. He gave him spiritual life in Christ. And then he gave his son and his whole family spiritual life in Christ. 
The son didn't just physically live as good and great as that is. No, he is spiritually living right now at this very moment. And he will spiritually live for all of eternity in the presence of the God in whose presence is fullness of joy and at whose right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's what Jesus is doing in this story. Not granting physical life. Yes, he's doing that. But as a means to grant the physical life, the spiritual life, and to show you, hey, this is what I'm doing. This is what I'm about. This is what you need. And tying it all together, connecting it to last week, remember we just did water, worship, witness. Why and how did all this household believe? You know, only by the grace of God, only the Spirit, but through, I heard it, witness. Because he came home and he told them what happened. Remember, worship is, oh, this is really, really good. And witness is, oh, this is really, really good. Hey, have you seen this? Hey, look at this. Hey, come see this wonderful thing. That's what this man has done. He has spoken to them a word about the word who gave him the word that his son would live. And so he was so overwhelmed and so overjoyed that he spoke. And then they all believed and they all lived. What a wonderful story about the Christ who is and gives abundant, spiritual, eternal life. And it is only because of this, because of him, that we can face death with no fear. He's already faced it, and he's already defeated it. John 11, he is the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in him, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who, believe, who lives and believes in him shall never that is true for our dear sister Lydia, and that is true for all of those who are in Christ Jesus. And so I leave you with the question that he asks Mary or Martha at that time. Do you believe this? Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is living and active. Thank you for the many evidences in this room of that fact. Father, what... What signs and what miracles is that you have brought dead hearts in this room back to life? We were dead and you made us alive. You granted us the gift of repentance and faith when um, we were your enemies, when we were not righteous, when we were not good, when we were not seeking you. Father, you sought us in Christ and you graciously granted us life. Father, thank you. Father, forgive us for how little we think of you and, and what you have done for us. Forgive us for how little we read our temporary life in light of our eternal life. Forgive us for how obsessed we are with immediate circumstances and how blind we are to eternal circumstances. Father, change our perspective, shift our gaze, direct our focus to the Jesus who is light and who is life. I pray that you would use this word and your scriptures as we go throughout our weeks, Father, to draw us to him and to show us him and to grow within us a greater love and affection for Jesus. Father, that's all that we want and that's all that we need. Only Jesus. So Father, we pray uh, that you would show us Christ and minister to him now. Minister him now to our hearts by your spirit through your word. We ask and we pray all this only in the name of Jesus. Amen.